This dynamic message is brought to you by Redemption in Jesus with Marco Bravo. Let's begin with our Bible study tonight. And here's the title. We are studying the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, or We know it as the book of Hebrews, but it was a letter, an epistle written. And I believe it was written by the Apostle Paul, although there's nothing conclusive that shows us that. Um, and tonight we are looking at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. And we are subtitling this part, this study, Certainty in God's Promise. Or you could also say Certainty in God's Promises. But we're going to focus on His promise of Jesus because that's what the uh, portion does. And then it goes on to to talk about the other promises of God. All right. So now, to bring us just on par with the most recent context, because we kind of obviously can't go through everything that we've covered. Now, the author, remember, gave a strong warning about apostasy just before this in chapter 5. And for them specifically, it was about leaving salvation in Jesus for law. In other words, to go back to law, to relate to God by law. And so he addresses that and he says to them, if you do that, you are basically rejecting salvation in Jesus. And it's an irreversible decision. You cannot undo it. You cannot be saved twice. You cannot be saved again. You can only be saved one time. And specifically understanding what redemption in Jesus is, uh, you know, if someone walks away, I mean, imagine that. The Old Testament is a type and shadow of Jesus. And so out of peer pressure, out of persecution, and many of them just had a hard time, you know, with, I guess, their families and, you know, their community. Um, And there were people among them who are known as Judaizers, people who who try to draw them back to law. Because in essence, if you think about it, the writer, the author of the epistle of Hebrews, God, of course, is the ultimate author, but the person he used to write it, which I believe is Paul, um, he basically tells them, if you do that, you're going to reject salvation in Jesus. But then at the same time, As we go on from that warning, he says to them, he encourages them and he says, but I want you to know that I know that you haven't made such a fatal decision. I know that you haven't rejected salvation in Jesus. And obviously he knew that because firstly, those who were listening to his letter or reading his letter obviously had not done that. But also he says, it is evident to us by the love you have for God And by the work you do for God, and you express that by being a blessing and ministering to those around you. And so remember, that's the last part that we looked at, where we saw that, you know, one of the evidences, how you can tell that someone has not rejected salvation in Jesus. And of course, for them, it was going back to law. For a new covenant believer, for us who are non-Jewish, Gentile, For us, it would be living an intentional, sinful lifestyle. That will eventually cause one. You know, their conscience will become seared, their heart becomes hard, and eventually they get into unbelief, and eventually they do end up rejecting salvation in Jesus. And so, either way, it's, you know, applicable there to them and to us. But he says in that last portion, he says, the way that I know that you haven't rejected salvation in Jesus. He says, number one, you have a love for God. You have a passion for God. You want to love Him and you work for Him. You serve Him. You do things for the kingdom. Now, it's not to say that they would be saved by the works that they did, but rather the works were the fruit of their salvation. And he says, and how we know that is because you love those around you and you are doing everything you can to serve them to minister to them, encourage them in the faith, and keep them in the faith. And so he says, that's how I know that you haven't rejected salvation in Jesus. And so that is one of the ways we can tell if someone has rejected salvation in Jesus. They don't have a love for God anymore. And secondly, they have no interest in doing anything for God and expressing that by those around them, other believers around them, other people who are in the faith, and encouraging them in the faith and in redemption in Jesus. 
And so having said that, he then says, and I'm going to include verses 11 and 12, which we covered last week, but I'm going to include it in tonight so that we don't lose the context because I don't want us to ever share something, study something, teach something out of context. That's how erroneous doctrines come in, misinterpretations and so on. So to keep the context, now we're going to pick it up in verse 11 and 12. And then we'll get into our section that we're actually going to study tonight, which is 13 to 20. So let's begin by looking at 11 and 12 for context's sake. He says, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. In other words, the way you see those who love God and serve God and do things for God and work for God and bless those around them. He says, my desire is that every single one of you will be as diligent as you can to hold on to that hope until the end because that reveals that you ha- you're holding on to that hope. Then he says in verse 12, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, what he is saying is, I want you to always be diligent about your hope in Jesus. He says it will keep you from becoming lazy and bored. That's what he means when he says slothful. And so then he says, be like those of old. In other words, Old Testament, not just covenant, but testament. Be like those of old who believed patiently and ultimately obtain God's promises. So once more, because it's a Hebrew community, in essence, by heritage, they are Jews. And now he's told them, you can no longer relate to God by law. You need to relate to him by grace, by the new covenant. But he still refers often enough to the Old Testament scriptures, as you have seen throughout the study. And here again, he's doing the same thing. And he's pointing them to the Old, uh, Old Testament, not just the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And he is saying, look at those in the Old Testament, And see, in other words, before the law, during the law, he says, regardless of that, look at those of old. In other words, those before the cross. He says, there were some who believed patiently and ultimately they saw the fulfillment of God's promise. Whether it was here in this lifetime or by death, they entered into glory. They saw the promise of God fulfilled either way. And he is saying, but he's specifically referring to those who were on earth and saw the promise of God fulfilled while they were here on earth. And he says, that, use that as your example. Be like them. That's what he says in verse 12. He says, be followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, I want you to be like them. And then he goes on to share an example of what he's talking about. The kind of example that he has in mind. And he uses Abraham because they were familiar with Abraham, as you know. And so that's what he does in our next portion. So let's read it. This is what we're going to study tonight. And then we'll look at it bit by bit. So remember, that's the context here. So then he says four. So remember, the four connects it to the part before. And he's just told them, be like those of old who through faith and patience inherit inherit the promises. He says four, when God made promise to Abraham. So you see now he's using Abraham as an example of who he's referring to when he says, be like those of old. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one, by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear, by the greater and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife wherein god willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for god to lie he might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, 
and which entereth into that within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I, as always, I know that sometimes the old King James is a little harder to understand because we don't really speak that kind of English anymore. But you know what I'm going to say. It's one of the most accurate word-by-word translations. And you've seen how one little word can change doctrine completely. And so we don't want to lose that accuracy. But at the same time, we want to understand what we're actually reading. And although that, in essence, in concept, we can kind of capture what he's saying. He's using Abraham as an example. And he's saying what God did for Abraham to give him confidence that his promise was true and that he would fulfill his promise. He uses that and he says, you know, he does certain, God does certain things to uh, let Abraham know that he can expect that. He can expect God's promise to be fulfilled. And so he goes on to explain all of that. And then he says, and our hope is the same. Because just like the old covenant priest could enter the holy of holies, the most holy place in the old covenant temple. He says, we can enter. Our hope is anchored in there in the presence of God. And it is anchored there in and through Jesus. And that's why we can have great hope because he is our high priest representing us in there. So I'm running a little bit ahead of myself, but that's in essence what he's saying. But let's go and have a look at it and study it, you know, bit by bit. And let's just get into some of the additional stuff so that we can understand this even better and in a greater way. So let's begin by looking at verses 13 to 15. Remember it said there, he's just told them in context, he told them that they need to be like those of old and follow their example, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Then he says, for when God made promise to Abraham, so God made Abraham a promise. See that? Because he could swear by no known greater, he swear by himself. So God in wanting to show, or I'm using this lightly, but it's going to help us understand what it's saying. In convincing Abraham about this promise, God, there was, there's no one greater than God. And because of that, it says, yeah, God then made an oath. He swear, that's an oath. And so he made an oath by himself. In other words, in his own name, with his own integrity. Generally, when we make an oath, we always use someone else. We say, you know, I'll tell you before God, for example. Or I'll, I've heard people say, you know, I swear on my father's grave or whatever. I swear on my children. I hear all kinds of things. We generally make an oath pointing to someone greater or something greater than we are. Well, there's nothing greater than God. And this is why God made an oath to Abraham by himself. And I'll explain that a little bit more. And then in verse 14, it says, saying, surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, this is talking about Abraham now, and so after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So what this is showing us here is, is that God made a promise to Abraham. There was no one greater that he could make an oath by so that it would convince or give certainty to Abraham. So God saw, made an oath by himself, to himself, based on his character, his integrity. And then it's, he says what that blessing was. And he says, and as a result of that, Abraham patiently endured. In other words, he went through whatever he went through in life, but he always hung on to God's promise because he had an oath that God made to him. And so eventually he obtained the promise. So the first question we need to ask ourselves, because yeah, remember, he's using Abraham as an example of how to patiently endure by faith and get the promises, obtain the promise. And so why use Abraham as an example of someone who believed God and thus obtained the promise? Why didn't he pick someone else? Why didn't he pick uh, Joseph, David? I mean, there's a number of people, characters that he could have picked from the Old Testament. And he decided to pick Abraham. 
Why is that? Well, don't forget, he's speaking to a Hebrew audience primarily because he's written this letter to them. This is a Jewish community living outside of Israel. Bible scholars believe it was Greece. And so they, most of them had received salvation in Jesus. And he's just told them for the last six chapters we've seen, five and a half, we've seen how he's told them, you need to stop relating to God by law and relate to him by grace. And then he goes to explain the supremacy of Jesus. You know, he's superior to angels, to Moses, and he goes on to explain everything we've looked at. But now, so this is why he's now using Abraham. Let me give you five reasons why he uses Abraham as an example to them. Besides the fact that they were familiar with Abraham. Very well, very much so. So the first reason why he uses Abraham is because Abraham had a heart for God. It is very clear, even before he became the first Jew, if you will, even before God made a covenant that he made Abraham a beneficiary of, even before any of that, Abraham had a heart for God. He was from a land of astrologers. They were into astrology and you know, star worship and all kinds of things. And yet... He left all of that because he had a heart for God. So that's the first reason. The second reason why the author is using Abraham as an example is because he is the father of the, nation, of the Jewish nation. He was the first Jew, if you will. When God entered into this covenant and then told him to go and be circumcised, circumcision was the sign that he is now the first Jew. So he's the father of the Jewish nation. So these Hebrews would have a clear connection with Abraham. They had great respect for Abraham. And because of that, they would pay attention to his example. I mean, it would be like me, for example, saying, I want to share an example with you on how to be patriotic. You know, be a patriot for your nation. And I use an example of a South African. Even though you may be familiar with him, it's going to be hard for you to connect with that and relate to that. For example, Nelson Mandela. Everyone, I have great respect for him. He did an awesome thing. And, but if I were to talk to you about him and use his heart for the nation and for the people of South Africa, you're not really going to be able to connect completely with that example. But then if I go and use one of our American forefathers, such as George Washington or you name, whichever you pick one, you'll be able to connect with that a lot more. And even some of our recent leaders, you'll be able to connect that a lot more. Why? Because it's <laughs> someone who is like you, American, and someone who you know, can relate entirely to our constitution and everything else that goes on. And so this is why he's using Abraham as the example to show them how we need to believe God Live by faith, if you will, which is the same thing. Believe God and trust Him and see, we will see His promises fulfilled. And so, remember, the first thing is Abraham had a heart for God. Second thing is, is that He's the father of the Jewish nation. The third reason is, is that Jesus Himself, through Mary, His natural mother, earthly mother, human mother, Jesus was a natural descendant of Abraham. Yes, He's the Son of God. But he was a natural descendant of Abraham through Mary, because Mary was a descendant of Abraham. So that's the other reason, because not only can they connect it with their old covenant, their Old Testament faith and covenant in actual fact, but they can also connect him to Jesus now, who they have received as Lord and Savior. And then the fourth reason is, is because Abraham was the beneficiary of a covenant that God made with himself, not with Abraham, with God himself. And we'll get into that a little bit more. That's the fourth reason why he's using him as an example. Because there was a covenant that they were into, but also new covenant believers are into. So as new covenant believers, they've also stayed in that covenant, which is a grace covenant, or you could call it a grant covenant. And we'll study that sometime as far as, you know, covenants. But so that's the fourth reason. And then the fifth reason also is because Abraham is the father of all who believe as he did. And we don't have time to get into it, but I'll give you the reference. Galatians 3, chapters, 
chapter 3 verses 6 to 9 shows us that. That Abraham is the father equal, whether it's a Jew or a Gentile, a Jew or non-Jew. If they believe, like Abraham believed God, then he's the father of them all, the Bible says. And so that's the fifth reason. And you'll see how all of those reasons come into play as he goes on to explain this. This is why he's using Abraham as an example. It's someone they can relate to, someone they know a lot about, and someone who they respect. And because of the respect they have for him, because they are his heritage, and they know how serious God's covenant with him was because it started their whole nation, they can actually connect with that and then do as Abraham did. That's the reason why he's doing it. And so <clears throat> the other point that I want to just draw your attention to here while we're talking about this is, is that, remember, Jews or who lived under the law, they assumed that salvation came by keeping God's law because that's the way they were to relate to God by the old covenant, by the law. And so he told them, he says, if you fulfill these commandments and you do this, salvation will come. Did it ever come? No, because they could never fulfill it completely. But in their minds, they assumed that salvation came by keeping the law. So in their minds, if they kept the law, they would hopefully eventually be saved. But they didn't have certainty. But that's the way they saw it. But here the author, what he is doing is, he's assuring them and telling them that no, salvation comes by faith. He says, those who inherit the promises by believing, by faith. And then he goes on to use Abraham as an example. So he's also making that point. He's also showing them that salvation comes by believing like Abraham believed, not by the law. Okay, So this is echoed in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 actually has a lot to say about Abraham and how he believed God and all of that. So this is what the author of Hebrews is bringing into the minds of the Hebrews. And so let's have a look at it just for reference sake. Romans chapter 4, and we're going to read verse 3, then we're going to jump to 9 to 12. But look at this over here. This is going to give us the picture of why he's using Abraham as an example. It says there, For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Or you could say, because he believed. So how did Abraham become righteous before God? How did he get right standing before God? By believing. Just like we. We do the same thing. There's no certificate from heaven that comes down, floating down, you know, from invisible to visible and lands in front of us. And it's signed in the blood of Jesus. Or it's got his fingerprint in his blood. And it says, you are now saved and have right standing before God. We have no natural, tangible, physical guarantee. But in our hearts, we've been circumcised. We have had that new birth experience. And that is our evidence. And we know. But how do we maintain all that? How do we stay in that? How did, how did it begin? By us simply believing. We, we heard the gospel we heard what God has to say and what He's done to redeem us in and through Jesus. And we decided, I'm going to believe that. I am going to believe that God saved me from the fallen sinful state that I was in in Adam. And I'm going to believe that Jesus keeps me saved and that He has redeemed me, that He has made me righteous, holy before the Father. And because I believe that, then it says, you have that. And so it's the same thing. And it tells us that Abraham actually did the same thing. So he believed like you and I believe. And he believed like the Hebrews were believing. That's why he brings this up to them. Then it goes on and it says in verse 9 to 12. So remember, it said, For the scriptures tell us that Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Then he says in verse 9, Now is this blessing, in other words, that blessing that Abraham received, only for the Jews. In other words, they're entitled to it because of Abraham. He's their natural father, um, their, their her yeah, heritage father. So he says, is this only for the Jews? Or is it also for the uncircumcised Gentiles? In other words, the non-Jews. Well, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. In other words, because he believed. 
But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised? In other words, after he became an actual Jew? Or was it before he was circumcised? In other words, he was a Gentile before that. Clearly, God accepted Abraham, watches, before he was circumcised. In other words, Abraham believed before he became a Jew. So believing God is greater than being under law. That's what he's saying. Then he says in verse 11, Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith. In other words, God said to him, Go get circumcised and become the first Jew because you already believe. Not go and get circumcised so you can believe. That's the point that he's qualifying there. And that God, watch this, had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous. Even before he was circumcised. So Abraham, watch this, is the spiritual father of those who have faith. See, there it is. So whether you're a Jew or Gentile, a Jew or non-Jew, Abraham is your father if you believe like he believes. That's what it's saying. But have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous, watch this, because of their faith. So the exact same thing that happened with Abraham happens with us who believe, whether Jew or Gentile. Then it says, and Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised. That's those under law. But only if, look at this, but only if they have the same kind of faith. In other words, they believe the same way Abraham believed be, before he was circumcised. So you can see from that portion, it is absolutely clear. This is the reason why he's using Abraham as an example. Because what he is saying is, is that, you know, if you want to bring heritage, Jewish heritage into the picture, he's saying <laughs> it's really irrelevant. Because ultimately it's about believing God, not about heritage. It's not about being a Jew or non-Jew. It is about believing God. And if you believe like Abraham believed, then you have the same promise fulfilled in your life that he had fulfilled which was righteousness in his case. But also he had the other promises of God and Abraham believed. So this is why he's using him as an example to basically explain to them. Under law, you cannot believe, you don't have to believe, you don't need to believe. And it actually, in fact, it says, you know, the law is not a faith. Why? Because if you do, you get, and if you don't do, you don't get. So it's a matter of just doing or not doing. But believing is different. It's having faith and trust and confidence in God and what He's done for us in and through Jesus outside of our doing, outside of our merit and performance. And so here again, he qualifies that point. And so how did Abraham believe? Well, according to everything we've read so far, Abraham believed God wholeheartedly, completely and totally. Yes, did he have his moments? Sure he did. We know that he did. We read about them. But in general, even when he had moments, his heart remained convinced and, and remained trusting God and believing God. And that's why ultimately it says he saw the promise of God. Look at this in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8. And we're going to get this, so I'm not going to spend too much time on this one. But look at what it says about him. It was by faith, in other words by believing, that Abraham obeyed God, obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as an inheritance. Watch this. He went without knowing where he was going. Leave that on for a moment. Watch this here. It says, it was by believing that Abraham obeyed God. <clears throat> so he had no evidence. He had no proof. There was nothing to convince him. God just spoke to him, spoke to him in his heart. And Abraham, to God at his word, decided to believe him completely and totally. And even though in the natural, this would be crazy to just say, you know, pack your things up, go, leave everyone behind, leave your family and everyone, and just go. And I will, you will find the land that I've given you as an inheritance. And he did it. And it says that he went there without even knowing where he was going. So here's the point. God didn't give him the whole master plan. He didn't give him the whole... You know, he didn't have GPS and he showed him the end point from his starting point and how long it would take him and, you know, where he could stop and do this and do that. No, God just said to him, Abraham, I want to make you a promise. I want to give you a land as your inheritance and you, your generations to come. 
So, but I want you to leave everyone behind and just go with your immediate family. And that's what he did. And it says here that he literally obeyed God by just believing God. Without any evidence, without anything else. And he didn't even know where he was going to go, where he was going to head. He just started going. I mean, how many people do you know that actually take God at his word in that way? And I mean, I wish I could say that I did, but we had some certainties. But when God called us to the United States, you know, Helene and I, I mean, it was pretty much the same thing. We really didn't have anything. We had our whole lives there. And, you know, to shut our whole lives down and, you know, sell our cars and our home and everything and then come here and have no guarantees and just trust God. Um, I mean, in many ways, I have a, we got to experience what Abraham must have experienced. But he had no guarantees. He had no end point. We did. We knew where we were going. We knew more or less what was going to happen. So we had more certainty. But he didn't. And so, but he believed God wholeheartedly. And he, because he believed God, he obeyed God. That's the way we need to walk our walk of faith. We need to believe God even when it doesn't make sense. Even when everyone else says to you, that's crazy. Why are you doing that? What is going on? It makes no sense. Sometimes we just need to obey God because we believe God. And you know, he'll tell us along the way, which is what he did with Abraham. But this is how Abraham believed God. And this is what he is bringing to the attention or is presenting to the attention of the Hebrews here. He's telling them, you need to believe God the way Abraham, your father, as far as heritage goes, believed. But he's also the father of everyone who believes. So he's highlighting that point, which <laughs> cannot happen under law. And so let's continue. But before we do that, let's look again at uh, verse 14. There's something else that I want to clarify here so we understand it better, seeing that we are studying it. Remember, the promise that God made to Abraham was in verse 14, in this specific instance that we are studying. Remember, he said, saying, surely, <clears throat> blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. It's a little hard to understand that. So let's read that. From the Passion Translation, it will help us understand it clearer. Watch this. So he said, Have no doubt. I promise to bless you over and over and give you a son and multiply you without measure. All right, so that's in essence in modern English what God really said to Abraham. He says, Don't doubt, Abraham. I'm going to bless you over and over. And remember, this is also a promise for you and I. He's, and he's saying, I'm going to bless you over and over. And he says, you will have a son. And I will multiply you without measure. In other words, your descendants, and remember when he showed him the stars, and he says, if you can count them, that's how many you're going to have. And then he showed him the sea sand, you know, by the sea. And he said, if you can count the grains, that's how many descendants you will have. And so God made him that promise. And so let me ask you this question, based on what we know today, not just from the Bible, from Scripture, but just in general, as far as our population statistics. Did God keep His promise to Abraham? If you say yes, raise your hand or wave at me. Well, He certainly did. He did keep His promise. Isaac was born to him, remember? And so through Isaac, this promise was fulfilled. But not just that, it took 25 years for Isaac to be born. So from the time God made him this promise, it took 25 long years. But Abraham believed God, he held fast, and he believed wholeheartedly. And, and because he believed, it happened. Right? And so God did it. Now, Abraham kept trusting God and believing God. Now, how do we know that that promise actually happened? Well, besides the fact that we read it in Scripture, let me give you some fairly recent statistics. According to records, which are available publicly, you can Google this too. As of 2020, so that's two years ago almost. As of 2020, there were, or there are, there's actually more now obviously, but there were 14.8 million who identify as Jews. 
as Jewish people. So 14.8 million, all stemming from Isaac. All stemming from that promise that God made to Abraham. Now you may say, well, if you keep, keep, you know, keep track with the news, and this is true in fact, by the way, I got the alert yesterday, but yesterday we got the alert that we have now reached 8 billion total population on earth. So as it stands today, from yesterday, we are now officially on the countdown from 8 billion beyond. <laughs> so, interesting. But going back to our subject here. So in 2022, there were 14.8. So it's probably more around 15 million now in 2022. 15 million people who identify as Jews, all stemming from the promise that God gave to Abraham. But that's not where it stops. Over and above that, on the planet today, there are 2.2 billion, not million, billion. There are 2.2 billion people who identify as Christian. <laughs> and you know that if they identify themselves that way, according to Scripture, as we've just seen in Romans and Colossians tells us that, they are also then children of Abraham on the basis of faith. Because those who believe like Abraham are also children of Abraham, and he's the father of those who believe. Remember that? So you take 15 million, 2.2 billion, and add them together. That's the result of God's promise that he made to Abraham. So <laughs> did God fulfill his promise? And he, is he still fulfilling that promise to Abraham? He sure is. And he will continue to do that until it's all over, said and done. Isn't that so? So we know that God has fulfilled his promise and all because Abraham chose to believe God. He didn't try and get convinced and say, give me proof, give me evidence. I need this. I need a word. I need two prophetic words. I, I need a written word from someone. I need a vision. No, <laughs> he got all that, but he didn't ask for all that. He simply believed God. And that's what his call is here to the Hebrews. Believe God like Abraham believed God. That's the example you need to follow. Not the example of the law. The law can't do that for you. You can't do that under law. And so, the other point that he uh, brought out there, of course, is, is that God cannot lie. This is why his promise is still being fulfilled today. Thousands of years later, beyond Abraham. God cannot lie. And remember that God also is not able to fail. He doesn't have the capacity to fail. And so we can trust Him. We can rely on Him. And we need to choose to do that. Amen. And so there's something else too that I want to show you in verse 13 before we move on. We've read this already. Let's have a look at this. It says, For when God made promise to Abraham, watch us now, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. So there was no one greater than God. There is no one greater than God. And God wanted to show Abraham. He wanted to, and like I said, I'm using this lightly because God didn't have anything to prove. But in actual fact, we'll see, that, you'll, we'll see that in a moment. Abraham actually said, God, how can I know? Can you give me some evidence? So he did actually ask, but he asked after he believed. He just wanted verification, if you will. And God actually gave it to him. But because there was none greater to... So God didn't need to make an oath to Abraham. Not that he made that to Abraham, but he made the oath to himself so that Abraham would see that God is willing to make an oath to let him know how certain his promise was. That's what this is saying. And because there was no one greater, he did it to himself. In other words, like for example, if someone were to say, and, and please, I'm, I'm not being disrespectful or dishonoring. I'm using it because of the examples we know in our society. If someone were to say, I swear on the Bible. I mean, you know what that means. And you know what you're committing yourself to. For some people, that doesn't mean anything. It's sad. But for the believer, for someone who fears God and reverences God, that actually means something. So let's go with that. And so if someone were to say, I swear on the Bible, that's a serious oath that they are taking. Well, there was no Bible for God to swear, because really what we're saying is, I swear on God, someone who's greater than me. Or someone who says, you know, I swear on my relative's grave, it's someone greater than them, someone they view greater than them. Well, there was no one greater. So God couldn't do that. 
And so because of that, he swore, he made an oath, he swore by himself, to himself, based on his own character, his own integrity. That's what it's saying. And that's powerful stuff. And here's the reason why. So because there was no one greater, God decided to secure his promise to Abraham with himself, his own character, his own integrity. That's how he was going to secure it and let Abraham know that this is why you can count on it, you can be secure. Because I'm making an oath to myself. In other words, I'm putting myself at risk if I don't fulfill those promises. And of course he knew he could do it, but he was really just doing it for Abraham's sake. And so his promise, or God's promise then, is secure, or should I say is as secure as God is. So as sure as God is, that's how sure his promise to Abraham was. And that's how sure his promises to us are. That's what we're drawing from this here. And of course, it's as certain as he is. That's another way you can put it. By, by making an oath to himself, by himself, what God is saying is, my promise is as certain as I am. Now, to see what actually happened and how this happened and what it looked like for Abraham, we're going to jump to that portion. But we're going to take a brief look at it. We're only going to look at specific verses that give us the picture, the snapshot. We're not going to study it because this isn't part of our study, but it can be a really great study. And maybe sometime in the future we will actually study this and get into the details and specifics of it because everything means something. But what I want to do is I want to show you and rewind and take us back in Scripture to where this actually happened, where God actually made and swore this oath to Abraham and what it looked like. And then I'm going to show you a slide, a sketch of what it must have looked like. So you can have a visual of what they looked like. Okay. And so let's have a look at that. Genesis 15, we're going to read verses 7 to 10. Then we're going to go to verse 12. And then we're going to jump to 17 and 18 for time's sake from the New Living. This is when this happened. Okay. It says, Then the Lord told him, so this is God speaking to Abraham. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. So this is now after he left and after he obeyed God and God led him. Okay? He says, now watch this. But Abraham, Abraham, this is before he renamed him, gave him a new name by Abraham. And that's another wonderful study in there because Abraham is the same word for grace. So really God put grace into Abraham. Same thing with Sarah. But we'll get into that some other time. But Abraham replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? So at this point, he's followed him, he's believed God. And now Abraham says to God, how can I know that I will possess this land? Can you give me some certainty? Can you give me something that will let me know that it's so? Uh, he wasn't necessarily looking for to be convinced because he was already convinced. He was there already. He was already following God and obeying God. So he just wanted some form of verification. And so watch what happens here in verse 9. The Lord told him, watch us now, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon now as much as i want to study those and get into those and teach on those i'm holding myself back because i don't want a rabbit trail we need to stick on, on on our subject here so notice he tells him to bring those animals verse 10 so abram presented all these to him and killed them so it's a type of not really sacrifice it's a way that they enter into covenant in those days remember this is before the law this is way 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 back in history and so he killed them. So he, Abraham knew that this meant God was going to enter into covenant. Now I'm sure that Abraham assumed he was going to enter into covenant with him. But watch what happens. Then he cut, watch this. It gets a little gory here. Okay, So if you have young children watching with you, you may not want them to see this slide. Or you may. I don't know. You decide if you're a parent. So watch this. So Abraham presented all these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle 
and lay the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. So the turtle dove and the pigeon, he didn't cut them in half. He just laid one on one side and one on the other side. Okay, And that all has meaning and everything else, which we'll study sometime in the future. Okay, so now watch this. So you, you're getting the picture in your imagination here. Then in verse 12, it says, As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness came down over him. In other words, it was literally to paralyze him and prevent him from moving around or engaging in anything. That's why the darkness was there. Then verse 17 to 18, watch this. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. <clears throat> so he, remember, he cut them in half and put them one on each side. And the blood ran in between them. And where the blood was running is where this smoking fire pot, obviously floating in the air, and this flaming torch floating beside it, so side by side, these two items walked between, not walked, but <laughs> moved between the pieces, the halves of the animals. That's, I mean, it's, it's a strange picture just to see, and I'm going to show you a sketch, an artist's sketch in a moment. So the Lord made a covenant, watch this, with Abraham. But in essence, you'll see that even though it says he made it with Abraham, really he didn't. Watch, here's why. That day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. All right, so you get the picture more or less what's going on here and let me just tell you before i show you this is how covenants back in abraham's abraham's day were made this is how covenants agreements contracts if you will were sealed were concluded back in those days there were two parties who wanted to enter into a covenant into an agreement into a contract they would bring those three animals and they would cut them in half and put the pieces side by side and let the blood run down the middle. Then the two parties entering this agreement, this covenant, they would then walk between the pieces where the blood was and by so doing, walk from one, the beginning to the end, to the other end, and by so doing, they would enter into a covenant, into an agreement. And it was a blood covenant because blood was shed. And because of that, they were now bound to that covenant. And the only way out of the covenant was by death. So if one of them broke it, if one of them did not adhere to it, death would be the, th uh, that's all that would happen. They would have to be put to death. And so it was a serious thing. Now in this case, we see that God does that by himself. A darkness came over Abraham, so he couldn't see, so he wouldn't, he wouldn't because he knew what, what the, was this was. So he didn't go and start walking. So he wouldn't go and be, walk between the pieces because God didn't want, he wasn't really coming into covenant with Abraham. Because Abraham couldn't fulfill anything. There was nothing for him to fulfill. This was all purely based on God's promise and God fulfilling it. But he wanted Abraham to be a beneficiary of the, con of the covenant. So this is why he was there and he got him to cut the animals. So that Abram would understand, even though you are not walking with God between the animals, and God himself is doing it by himself, and there were two items to show that it's God with himself making the oath. And so Abraham, eventually the darkness went away, and obviously it was too late for him to go between the pieces. But when he saw the two items going between the pieces, he realized this is God's way of letting, because he was very familiar with it. This is God's way of letting me know that he is entering into covenant with himself and he's making me, Abraham, the beneficiary. This is why it says here that he entered into covenant with Abraham. But it wasn't really with Abraham. And there's other scriptures that support that and I can show you. But he's saying that it was with Abraham because he made him the beneficiary of a covenant God did with himself by himself. Because only he could guarantee this with himself 
He didn't need Abraham to be a part of it, just like it is with us and Jesus. The new covenant is between God and himself, between him and Jesus. And we are the beneficiaries of that covenant. That's why we can receive salvation in Jesus, but there's nothing we can do to make that covenant more, make it stronger. It is a covenant between God and himself. So it's that similar type of arrangement here. It's pretty powerful. All right, so having said all that, uh, the other point that I want to mention here is, is that God sealed a covenant, basically, in a human way for Abraham's sake. Because remember, Abraham said to him, how will I know? Can you give me something? And so God put all this together to show him with something that he, Abraham, was familiar with. And so he did that in a human way so that Abraham would get it and understand. Pretty awesome, pretty powerful stuff, wouldn't you agree? All right, so having said all that, let me show you a slide to show you more or less what that looked like. And remember, this is a sketch artist who put this together, okay? So there you see the four, five animals at least. You see the heifer that's been cut in half. You see the goat. It was the female goat, that's right. And then the ram. And then you see the turtle dove and the pigeon closer to Abraham. And there's Abraham basically lying on the ground in the days, like it said. And there's the darkness that has just lifted off him and now moving itself away so that Abraham could then see the uh, fire pot and the flaming torch, which are side by side there, which started from Abraham where his foot is, and they went through between the pieces. And the reason why the darkness came on Abraham, as I said to you, so that he wouldn't walk between the pieces because God did not need him and did not want him to do that because then the covenant had to involve Abraham's involvement as well. And God didn't want that. God wanted his own ability, his own integrity, his own character to be the um, guarantee of his covenant. And so that's what that looked like. And so, like I said, this is how covenants were made in those days. And that's why God put a darkness on Abraham and didn't let him go through that because this was God's way of showing Abraham, I'm making a covenant with myself, but you are going to be the beneficiary, just like it is with us in Jesus. Jesus went through the cross, through the finished work of the cross, and sacrificed himself. We didn't have any part in that, but we are the beneficiaries, and we receive it by believing, which is exactly what happened with Abraham. All right, and we're running out of time here, so let's go and move on to verse 16 to 18. Let's continue with our portion here. It says, for men verily sway by the greater. So we sway by someone greater than we are. That's how we make oaths. And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. So if, it's, if an oath is made, if someone swears by something, then it's done. It's settled. That's it. Wherein it says, God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise. So now it's talking about us. So now he's going back to them. He's used the example of Abraham. They had this whole picture that I've explained to you, they understood that, they knew that. And now he says, you know, we make an oath by someone greater than, we, than us. He says, but God made this oath with himself to make it absolutely sure for us. Watch this. Unto the ears of the promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. So God made a promise and he confirmed it with an oath. That by two immutable things, that's his promise and his oath, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. We have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Now, if you look at that, it's loaded. Again, it's something that we can rabbit trail on, but we'll hold ourselves back here today. Immutable means trustworthy or unchanging. In other words, you can count on God's promise and the fact that he made an oath. So you have two things. You have his promise and his oath, so you can be certain. And he did that to give us confidence and certainty in his promise, is what he's saying. So God took an additional oath in his name so that we can have confidence, just like Abraham had confidence. That's what he's saying here, and he's talking about Jesus now. So we have double assurance and therefore, we can rely on God's faithfulness to fulfill His promise. Or you could say His promises. Amen.
And so this is why we can have great and unshakable hope. That's in essence what he's saying. So he's bringing it back home to them. And he's saying, why would you want to go back to law when you have this wonderful covenant in Jesus, which is, you know, Abraham's co- the, the, Abra- the covenant that God made before Abraham is the same you have. It Actually, it's greater. So believe like Abraham believed. Why would you want anything else? I mean, I'm putting it in my own words, but that's in essence what he's conveying here. Let's have a look at that same portion from the Passion so we don't spend more time looking at that. So it says there, So in the same way, God wanted to end all doubt and confirm it even more forcefully to those who would inherit His promises. Now it's talking about you and I and them who are believers. His purpose was unchangeable, so God added His vow to the promise. So He just topped it up to make us certain. So it is impossible for God to lie, for we know that His promise and His vow will never change. See, so He made a promise and a vow in and through Jesus, and it will never change. This is why you can count on your eternal security, your eternal redemption. Then he says, and now we, so now it's back to us believers, have run into his heart to hide ourselves in his faithfulness. See that? We rely on God's faithfulness, not our faithfulness, because it's a covenant that he has made. This is where we find his strength and comfort, for he empowers us to seize what has already been established ahead of time, an unshakable hope. Praise God for that. Isn't that awesome? So he brings it right back to the new covenant and to Jesus and redemption in Jesus. And he says, Abraham had that and look what God did. He says, we have Jesus and look how much more God did. And he equally promised us and made an oath. And this is why you and I can count on that and we can be certain. And we have unshakable hope is what he's saying. Praise God. Amen. So really, he's telling them, have confidence in the promise of God. You can have certainty in God's promise. That's what he's saying of Jesus, because that's the the whole bigger context here. Then let's end off with verse 19 and 20. It says there, which hope, now he's talking about that hope, that unshakable hope, which hope we have, watch this, as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, And which entereth into that within the veil, talking about the most holy place in the temple, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So really, in essence, what he's saying there, you know, ships, when they're out in the ocean, if they want to just take a rest for the night, but not be swayed by the waves, and just stay in that same position so they can continue the next morning, they throw down their anchor. It goes all the way down to the seabed, and it locks itself in and keeps that ship in that position, in that place. So it's a way of explaining certainty, security, right? And he says, yeah, that our hope that we have in and through Jesus and God's covenant with himself in and through Jesus, making us the beneficiaries, That is our great hope. It's unshakable. And it is like our anchor, which is anchored into God's presence, which is what the most holy place represents. So our hope is anchored in the very presence of God, in and through Jesus, who serves as high priest for us eternally. Unlike the old covenant, the high priest could only enter the holy place, the most holy place, once a year for atonement. That was it. Unlike that, Jesus is a high priest, a king priest, we've studied that, uh, in the order of Melchizedek, a different kind of order. And he is in there permanently representing us, interceding for us. That's what that means. And so therefore we have permanent eternal representation before the Father. And this is why our hope is anchored in the very presence of God. Now the other thing that I want to draw your attention to is that he said, we have an anchor of the soul. Well, what does our soul consist of? Our will, our mind, and our emotions. Our feeler, our thinker, our chooser. And he says all of that can have its certainty anchored in and through Jesus in the presence of God. It's pretty powerful. And so we'll study more about Jesus and Melchizedek when we get to chapter 7. So in all of this, this is what he's explaining now to them. And he's saying you can count 
on what Jesus has done for you. You have the picture of Abraham. And this is greater than that and more certain than that. And that's why we need to be like Abraham. Believe like he did. Let him be our example. And let's connect with what God is doing and hold on to what God is doing. Pretty awesome. Amen. We trust that you are blessed by this message. For more information about our ministry or to make a donation to help us continue spreading the gospel, please visit our website at redemptioninjesus.com.